Wow. Man, that is a phenomenal song until I saw John Gamichi carrying the offering plate. You know, he's... <laughs> no rhythm whatsoever. I relate to that, John. Hey, turn with your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. After a two-week journey uh, into 1 Peter 3, we're back in 2. The last couple of weeks, we've been focusing on marriage. Uh, Two weeks ago, we talked about the role of the wife. Last week, the role of the husband. Uh, God seemed to really have blessed our time in God's Word. Let me encourage you, if you have missed either of those, they're online or they're out in our foyers and, and pick those up as well. But today, we find ourselves in verse 11. And right before this, if you remember way back when, uh, Peter was again telling us who we are in Christ. And he's saying that, yes, you've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. And because you are saved in the blood of the Lamb, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Is that not an incredible title for us? And now he's going to tell us more of what we need to do and how we need to live our lives, declaring his excellencies uh, in this dark generation. We're going to look at God's word today in verses 11 and 12. By the way, thanks for coming this morning. I was really nervous. You know, everybody I know that's over at the beach, I'm thinking we're going to have 12 people here. So (laughs) the people who love Jesus and are here and worshiping, thank you very much. It is really good to see you. I'm awfully glad you're here. All right. God's word together. Beloved. By the way, this word beloved, maybe your translation says dear friends. It's not strong enough. Beloved. This this is the word that the father uses for the son. He calls uh, his son beloved. And this is the plural form of this. And so Peter is reminding us that this agape love that the father has for us that we have with one another. What an incredible term. So let's start off and just hear it. Beloved. Your father says, beloved. I urge you as aliens and strangers, and he's already told us in chapter 1 that in Christ we are no longer, as Reggie read uh, this morning, in Christ we're no longer aliens and strangers to him. But now there's been a switch. We're aliens and strangers to this world. That we are to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And really what Peter is saying here with the Gentiles are those who do not embrace Jesus as Savior. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let us pray together. Oh, Father God, it is so good to come into your house and to sing your praises and declare to you and to the heavenly host and to this world that by your grace, through the work of your Son, that we are saved by the blood of the Lamb. We thank you for who we are in Christ. We thank you that you have chosen us to be your people. We thank you that we are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are 
beloved in Christ. Those who by nature were far off have been brought near. And you love us. And your love has changed us from the inside out. And God, now as your children, we need to hear from you, our Father. And Father, would you therefore come with power and speak through this broken vessel. God, would you please anoint the preaching of your word. And would you open up our ears to hear your voice. Would you open up our minds to, to wrestle with and understand your truth and your calling in our lives? Would you soften our hearts so that we can embrace what you have for us? And Father, would you drive out the fleshly lust that still resides there? And Father, would you empower our feet to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? Father, the things that are said that are true and contain the good news of Jesus, would you use those things to make us more like our Savior, your Son, Jesus? The things that I say that are wrong are merely my opinion. May they quickly fall away and be forgotten. We pray that you and you alone receive glory and we receive great challenge and great joy. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Silas is the name of an albino monk in the Da Vinci Code. If you've seen it, you could probably already picture his face. He's a very scary-looking character. Uh, And yet, this scary-looking albino monk has an incredible zeal for his God. An incredible zeal for his religion. A zeal that would carry him to great lengths to execute what he believes is God's plan for his life. Or God's plan for his church. This Silas, this really scary character in Dan Brown's book, and now you can see on the uh, big screen, he would go as far as killing in God's name. He would go as far as to try to do what is right for God, what is trying to do what's right for the church, to kill even a nun. How do you feel about a God who condones killing? What do you feel about a God who commands killing? I mean, throughout ages, we live in a a world where those will kill and take the life of others and declaring that they're doing so in God's very own name. I mean, we read through the the pages of history and we see uh, the Crusades and we see death and Holocaust in the name of God. We even read through our Bibles and we will see uh, also uh, that our God seems to be condoning, seems to be commanding the slaughtering of certain people groups. How does it make you feel about a God who condemns killing and one who may even command it? It's hard, isn't it? I mean, today's day and age, we know phrases like infidel. Uh, We know that there are some, like in the Muslim faith, who will look at us and call us infidels because we do not worship their God. There are some radicals in that religion that will say there's a jihad, there's a holy war declared because only Allah is God and anyone who does not acknowledge Allah and his uh, prophet uh, Muhammad shall be killed. Our kids are growing up in that kind of world. But I was reminded that it's kind of been that way throughout time. Have you ever wondered about all that bloodshed in the Old Testament? 
Last night, uh, I was with a friend, and he was saying that he's going through uh, the Read Through the Bible program again this year, and he's finding himself in God's Word, and again, he's finding that struggle, a struggle that many of us have. You start reading God's Word, and you read about uh, the God uh, that, that reveals himself to us in His Word and to His people, and you read about their conquest of the Holy Land, and you read some pretty horrific things. I mean, God is not basically saying, hey, it might be good for you to drive those people out. It may be good for you to kind of do away with them. He's saying, let me command you, utterly destroy. Utterly destroy. You have a hard time with that? You ever wonder, what is up with the God of the Old Testament? There was a guy who lived in the second century, right around the 130s. Um, Marcion is his name. M-A-R-C-I-O-N. And he's from Pontus. Now, I want you to take your Bibles, if you have them, and turn back to 1 Peter 1.1. And Peter is going to be writing to the church that is scattered. He's going to call us aliens. Again, he calls us aliens in the verses we're looking at here. He says that he's writing to those who are in Christ throughout, listen, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. But there's a guy that maybe even heard this letter. You would think he would would hear this letter, uh, Marcion, who lived in the second century, who declared himself to be a Christian originally, went to Rome, joined the church, says, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And he's reading the Old Testament and he's reading the New Testament. You know what he comes up with this conclusion? There's two gods. There's not one God. There's really two. There's a God of the Old Testament, and he is the creator God, and he is the law-giving God, and he is the God of wrath. And then there's a God of the New Testament, and he's Jesus, and he is a good God. He's a God full of grace, and a God full of life, and a God full of mercy. And the God of the Old and the God of the New, they should never meet. As a matter of fact... Marcion went through the Bible and he started taking out, maybe like Thomas Jefferson did, things that didn't apply to him and his theology, any connection between with Jesus calling his father, and the, the, the Old Testament God, Father and Lord. You see, he had a really hard time. He couldn't justify a God who would command things that we might see in Deuteronomy 16. I'm going to take you to Deuteronomy 16. Um, here we have a Moses writing to God's people. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 through 18. And this is some of the stuff that Marcion really struggled with. This is what made him think, there's, there's got to be a couple of gods out there. Because when Moses was instructing the people to go and take possession of the promised land, he warned them, and he warned them that, The people in which you are going to, they are going to be a thorn in your side. They are going to be a burr in your eye. They're going to have to be driven out. And we also got to realize, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about this in a minute, that what was happening here for God's people, who are, by the way, called strangers and aliens, passing home, as they moved into the uh, promised land, they were uh, uh, operating under a theocracy where God was king Here on earth. And we know this about God. We know that the God of the Old and New Testament is holy God. We know this about the God of the Old and New that he cannot even look at sin. We know this about God because he is so pure, because he is without sin, that he has to deal with sin in his presence. 
He has to annihilate it. Sin and God cannot be in the same room. Sin and God cannot be together. And so you hear in Deuteronomy chapter 20, things like this. Verse 16. Only in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving to you as an inheritance, you shall not leave anything that breathes. But you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the the Perezzite, or whatever they are. The Hevitite, the Jezubite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Listen, here's why. So that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things, which they have done for their gods. So that you would sin against the Lord. Let me ask you a question. How does that fit in your picture of God? I mean, how does that fit? How does that fit in your understanding of Scripture? I mean, what do we do? I mean, here we have in Deuteronomy 20, God's inerrant word. We believe it to be God's inerrant holy word. And we have a God who's loving and merciful, who's saying, as you go into the promised land, wipe them out. Everything that breathes, animals included. Well, many clearly have struggled with this. Even modern-day Christians are confused with this. And not not that we see two gods. True Christians will say, no, there's only one true and living God. But there are Christians, uh, we would say their theological bent is dispensationalists. They believe that God acted one way in the Old Covenant, and He acted another way in the New Covenant. But Peter's already told us, if you've been here through the Peter series, we looked in chapter 1 that there's one story of faith. God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. The story is not part A in the uh, New Old Testament, didn't quite work, part B in the New Testament with Jesus. No, the entire book of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. It was all about Jesus. The prophets, as Peter himself has told us, are pointing to the Christ that would come, the Christ that would suffer. You see, we do have one story to tell. There is only one God. Marcion was excommunicated as a heretic, and he developed his own church, and it lasted until about the 4th or 5th century. But still, that heresy still rules and reigns today. So how do we justify it? How do we be able to bring a loving and merciful God into one story? You see, the story of the Bible is an incredible story of the God who creates all things out of nothing. The story of the Bible is an incredible story of a God who is holy, perfect. A God who is just And yet a God is who is merciful. The story of the Bible is about how man created in his own image rebels and says, God, I think I can make it without you. And how God still lovingly pursues that image bearer, lovingly pursues that image bearer, even to the point of bringing his son to become flesh and live among us. About a God who would choose us to be his own people and set a love on us that it's eternal. A God, listen to this, a God who had a place in his heart for us even before we were created. Who would love us so much and demonstrate that love for sinners like us that Jesus would come and rescue us and make us alive in Christ. The story of the Bible is one story. And any time God is with his people, sin has to be driven away. We no longer live in a theocracy. 
We no longer are trying to set up an earthly reign and rule here where Jesus is king. His kingdom has come. It has come with power because Jesus himself has come. God himself has visited us. And we can taste that kingdom now. And yet that kingdom has not yet fully been realized. There's more to come. More is part of the story. But because of the reality of what Christ has done, we live differently. There's still a battle that rages. And the infidel still needs to be killed. But the battle that rages now is within our soul. And the infidel that needs to be killed is an infidel that lives within our hearts. That Peter would say is fleshly lust. I love the beauty of one story. Uh, If you were here when we talked about uh, the women, talked about wives, uh, in chapter 3, Peter mentions Sarah. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 23... And my whole point in this next couple minutes is this. Don't lose me, because we've got some really good stuff to cover. But I want you to see the incredible beauty of God's Word. I want you to see that this is one story. That this is an incredible story. That Listen, we don't have to sit and be a part, uh, be a, 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 alongside of and say, that's a cool story. This story intersects our lives. In Genesis chapter 23, we're told of the death of Sarah. And Abraham responds in verse 4. And he says this, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Abraham knew that he was God's and he knew his status. Although he was called to a promised land, he knew that basically this earth was not his home. He was God's and therefore he was simply passing through. Turn with me to uh, uh, the Psalms. Psalm 39 verse 12. Psalm 39, verse 12 says this, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent to my tears. And here's what you got to listen. So listen to what the psalmist says. Listen to what David says. For I am a stranger with you and a sojourner like all my fathers. It's a beautiful picture. I mean, throughout time, God's people are with God. By God's grace, if we are in Christ, we are no longer strangers and aliens to Him. But if we are His, throughout time, this one story of one God that's unfolding is this. We are strangers and aliens here with God. Isn't it amazing that God Himself knows He's a stranger in the world He created? The the Son, the eternal Word, became flesh and dwelt among us, and they did not recognize Him or submit to Him. But God is with us. He's with us as His people. And therefore, because God is with us in Christ, we are called to drive out evil. We are called to battle for holiness. And here's the difference. Listen, here's the difference. Here's the difference, Christian. Here's the difference between us And from radical Muslims, there is a battle lines that have been drawn. But the battle lines that have been drawn for the holy war that God calls us to is first and foremost internal, not external. There is a way, the war that is raging within the soul. Look again at verse 11, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. 
Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war. There is a war, and the war that is going on is an internal war, and it is against your soul. Verse 11 tells us that there's a jihad against our soul, Christian. There's a holy war that is still battling. Yes, we have victory in Christ. Yes, His finished work on the cross is sufficient for all of us. Yes, the tomb is empty. Praise God. We do have victory today in Christ Jesus. And let me tell you some really, really good news. Nothing can ever separate us from that victory. Nothing can ever separate us from that love. Nothing. This jihad that's going on with our soul, this battle within, ultimately in Christ, we will win. Why? Because He wins and He's God Almighty. Is there a battle raging inside you? You know, there is. There is in this, Pastor. In God's word, I'm so thankful that he and his infinite wisdom is going to tell us that, you know what, you are mine, you are chosen, you are holy, you are a royal priesthood. I have cleansed you in the blood of the Lamb. You are saved, but you are still in a battle. And the battle that rages is one with fleshly lust. It's an inward battle. The jihad against your soul. And what do we have to kill? It's such good news, Christian. We're not called to kill the pagan. We're called to kill the infidel that is still inside. We're called to kill those fleshly lusts. What are fleshly lusts? Well, Peter will tell us in 1 Peter 4 some of the fleshly lusts in 1 and 2. But let's go to Paul. Paul so clearly tells us what this flesh is in Galatians 5. Galatians 5, verse 19 through 21. This is what these fleshly lusts consist of. Listen, Christian. This is the battle. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality. Is that a battle going on? Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Sorcery. Enmities. Strife. Jealousy. Outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and these like things, of which I forewarn you, just as I have, have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is a battle, my brothers and sisters, that is going on. The battle that each one of us, true believers of Christ, sons and daughters of the King, And God is calling us to put to death the infidel. Put to death the fleshly lusts. It's Memorial Day weekend, and we are very, very mindful of the reality of war. At least we should be. And we should know that that war produces casualties. It always does. What are the casualties of this war? What are the casualties with a war within? Let me give you some. And I would imagine that maybe many are struggling with some of these casualties. First, being taken captive by our lust. Lust has a way to enslave us. The reason God is calling us who are in Christ to avoid these fleshly lusts is because they will enslave us. They will rob our lives. They will take away our liberty. They will never give us what we need, the life and life abundantly we need. And that's why the story tells, like like, like a Ted Bundy, who 
who says, yes, he's a mass murderer, but he starts off in pornography. And that lust, he never put to death, and it grew more and more and more and more and more. Now, I don't think, I hope and pray there's any Ted Bundys here. But the same casualty of war is at work within each one of us. Lust will take us captive. It will hold us in bondage. It will rob us of our peace and joy. It will. If you are dabbling in a lifestyle that is feeding that fleshly lust, there isn't that freedom. There's a fear of being caught out. I mean, you've got to live your life in such a way you're doing a dance. You're doing a dance so that no one will know. And it's robbing your peace. It's robbing your joy. Because you have to live a life that's projecting something that's not a reality. Fleshly lust needs to be killed because God wants you to live a free life. He wants you to have joy. He wants you to be freed of bondage. And this is what sin's going to do. It's going to bring us into bondage. It's going to take us captive. It's going to rob our peace and joy. It's going to impair our judgment. It's going to shatter our families. And it has. It's going to rob us of life. And it's going to murder our testimonies to Christ. Kill the infidel within. Well, how do we do it? How do we kill this infidel? Well, first of all, we've got to acknowledge that there's a battle. Do you know that the greatest tool that Satan could use for us is really say, then this is not a very big deal. No big deal. Don't have to worry about that internal flesh and the lust of the flesh. The greatest tool that Satan could use is to lull the church into sleep. And to basically say there's nothing to worry about, like probably a pre-9-11 America. I mean, do we really believe that terrorists could fly planes into buildings, a trade, trade center? That reality is true today. 1 Peter 5, 8 will tell us that Satan prowls around. He prowls around like a lion. He's looking for someone to devour. And the first thing we got to do to kill the infidel is to realize we're in a battle. There is, there is one who wants to take us down. Yes, he is a defeated foe. Satan is a defeated foe. But he's a powerful foe. we got to acknowledge we're in a battle and we have a big bullseye on us because it says Jesus. The second thing we must need to know is this. When he says, calls us aliens and strangers, Christians, this is so important for us. And I think in today's day and age, we often miss this. And I know I do. It's this, do we really believe, think of the term aliens and strangers, do we really believe that this world cannot provide us life support as God intended? Did you get get that? Do we really believe as aliens and strangers that this world cannot give us the life support that God intended us to have? Because really, oftentimes we're living our lives as if we can find life and life abundantly here. We can't. And if we think we can find life and life abundantly here, then we won't be living our lives as aliens or sojourners looking for more to come. Isn't that true? I mean, there's a hope that should be pulling us forward. There's a hope that there's got to be more than this. There's still a pain that's deep inside. God, this can't be it. Not only do I got to acknowledge that I'm in a battle, I got to acknowledge that this world cannot support life the way God has intended it. I must look to him and his son, and I must walk home in a way that I know I don't want to be entangled by this world. How do you kill the infidel? You flee from fleshly lust. Paul will say in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee your youthful lusts. Flee. Flee. I mean, what does that mean for us? What does fleeing lust mean for us? For some of us, it means we can't have a computer anymore. 
For some of us, it may mean that we got to move our computer out of our bedroom into somewhere where the whole family can see. For some of us, it just means that we got to flee a relationship that is really, really unhealthy. Flee. Flee. Turn around and run from the lust of the hearts. We, not, we don't need to feed our fleshly lusts. We should have them wither and die. And feed the Spirit, the Spirit that gives life, the fruit of the Spirit. I read Galatians 5, 19. It talked about the fruit of the flesh. Right after that, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. How do we kill this infidel? We put on the full armor of God. We know we're in a battle. And we're not going to go into this battle ill-prepared. I mean, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, starting in verse 11, that we are in a battle. And because we are in a battle, we need to put on the armor of God. The jihad against our soul. I'm reading a book, uh, The Gift of Fear. Is that the name of it? It's, an, it's a best-selling book that talks about how God has, has given us, it doesn't acknowledge God, but how we're uh, wired uh, with this gift of fear to kind of sense, especially when women, sense when something isn't quite right. And it's talking about abuse, and it's talking about the number of households where women suffer abuse. And it just breaks your heart. And you start reading these statistics of the war that we live in, even in our own homes. And and then you turn to the church and you say, God, can you give me some better statistics? I want to hear how your people are doing. And you look at the statistics and you say, there's hardly any difference if, if there is at all. We need to kill the infidel within. Because there's also a jihad against our witness. In verse 12, Look with me at verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers. Do they slander us as evildoers? From Nero on down. Listen, Christians were the scapegoats. They're going to slander us as evildoers. What is basically the Da Vinci Code saying? It says the church is a bunch of evildoers that's trying to hide an incredible secret. The world is going to waggle their finger in our nose and say, You're hypocrites, you're evildoers. And they're going to want to take a shot at our witness. But here's what God's word says. He says, live such a godly life that as they are wagging their fingers in your face and and slandering you, they will also see, they will be observers of your good deeds and they will glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, there's a jihad against our witness. The world would love to show, the, the world would love to make Christians lifestyles our actions no different than their own. They would like to have our testimony be ruined with our behavior. And here's what God's word tells us. This is, this is so beautiful. Let's listen to this. We need to kill the infidel with kindness. What a beautiful gospel. Because of who we are in Christ to a sick and dying world, those who have yet to embrace Christ as, Jesus, as, Christ as Savior, we don't gun them down. We don't even slander them. We love them. God's upside down gospel that would send sinners like us a savior, his own son. He says, this is what you're supposed to do for those who will slander you. Love on them. Show them good works. Let them observe who Christ is in your life. Kill the infidel with kindness. How are we to do our good works? 
in the observation of the Gentiles so the world can see them, not under a bushel. We need to do our good works that are out there. God calls us in here, come in here, be a family, love on one another, get all charged up, hear God's work, then go. Then as you go, go in the love of Christ in word and deed. And may it not just be your words, but may it be in your actions. And you know what scares me about Christians? Uh, what seems to happen in Christendom is that we now don't necessarily go with good works. We judge good works. Well, that's not really valid. No, nah, that's really throwing away money. That wasn't done for the right reason. God has called us, Christian, to go and show the love of Christ in good deeds so that they can be observed and others can say, there's a God. They are loving us. They are feeding us. They are clothing us. They care for not only their own poor, they care for us as well. We need to do our good works in the observation of others. And how? For who do we do our good works? Have you ever heard it said at Orangewood, it's not about us? Have you ever heard it's not about us? What do we say around around here? It's for who? Christ and his kingdom. We do what we do. I mean, the Franklin house is built. The Harmon house is built. The Demarest house is built. Uh, Job partnerships coming into Eatonville. The school is expanding in Sweetwater. We're expanding down by God's grace in the Holden Heights area. We do these things so that the name of Orangewood would be praised. We do them so that the name of God would be glorified. We do them so that others will come to Christ. That is why we do everything we do here at Orangewood. Everything should be for His glory. That is why we are created. The jihad against our witness. May we live such godly lives and our good works declare that there is a God who is good and a God who is merciful. Orangewood, may we kill this world with kindness so that they will sing the praises of our God. The spoils of victory. Well, for us, it's a life abundantly. I mean, for us, if we live this life, if we abstain from the fleshly lives, there is an abundant life that is ours in Christ Jesus, free from all that entanglement. I was with a pastor this week whose whose life is upside down, his marriage is upside down, his ministry is over as he knows it. And he says, God has ruined my life. God has ruined my life. He's ruined my marriage. He's ruined my ministry. And I listen. I said, did God ruin your life or did God ruin your lie? Because really, your life wasn't the abundant life. There, there, there was so much abuse. There, there was so much uh, brokenness. It wasn't healthy. Yeah, God flew a plane into your lie so that you could build up in the reality and the foundation of Christ abundant life. What are the spoils of victory for us in Christ Jesus? Listen, it's abundant life. I want you to be ridiculously happy. I want you to be set free. And the only way you can do it, and by the way, that's only me, he wants you to be ridiculously happy and set free. It's in Christ. The spoils of victory when you kill the fleshly lust and you live for His glory, there is freedom, and there is joy, and there is peace. What about the spoils of victory for the infidel? There's conversion. There's no longer the infidel who will be uh, a a stranger of God, but one who will be brought in. That is our hope and prayer. I love this story. As as Robert went into the Harmon house, there was a young man there named Xavier. 
And, and Xavier, when Robert first met him and went into the house and he talked to him, Xavier wouldn't even get look at him. Robert said he just stared at the wall the whole time. But at the end of the project, and, and, and when Xavier saw his new room and Robert went back, said, Xavier, what do you think? There was a dialogue. There was a conversation. There was warmth because good works were seen. And good works were seen and walls were crumbling. And our hope and prayer is for conversion. Well, the spoils of victory for God. Listen, it's, it's His glory. It's what He's due. It's His glory. And that is our desire and goal. This last week I met with some pastors of Eatonville and we're excited about what's next. It seems to be a job partnerships initiative. And, and there we were in the Life Center, gathered around as pastors around a table. And we're talking about what God was doing in our midst. And you know what? We all had goosebumps. We were so excited about what God was doing in our midst. And we just had to declare the glory of God. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he marvelous that he loves both black and white equally? Isn't he beautiful that he's redeemed us and set us free? Let us give God glory For what things he has done. I tell you, there's no greater joy than doing that which God has intended us to do. And that's give him glory. Christian, it's Memorial Day weekend. And every Sunday, listen Christian, every Sunday is Memorial Day weekend for us. You see, today's a day we remember those who gave their lives to give us freedom. But Christian, every Sunday we remember the greatest warrior ever, Jesus And how he gave his life for our ultimate freedom. How he became flesh, John 1.14. How he was tempted by fleshly lust, Hebrews 4.15. Yet did not sin. Every Sunday is Memorial Day because he became sin. He became our sin on the cross. He was separated from his father so that we could be separated from our sin. And so that we would never be separated from the Father. It's a more Memorial Day celebration. God took those who were far off, those who were aliens and strangers to Him, and made us children so that we would have a home with Him. Are you heading home? Are you living your life as an alien stranger? Scott's going to sing a song that's a great reminder that we are just sojourners passing through. Let's pray together. And Father God, we thank you for the way you have loved us and demonstrated that love so clearly through the face of your Son. And Father, we ask that you would allow your Spirit to burn deep within us, that we can burn the fleshly lust that still uh, resides there and live our lives as aliens and strangers heading home and do good work so that others can come and sing your praises on the day of visitation and embrace you as Lord and Savior. We thank you for the way you love us. We thank you for the way you live.